We're presently living in a great paradigm shift in which God is indeed changing times and seasons. And as believers, we're supposed to discern and understand the times in which we live. In Daniel 2.21, it's revealed that the Almighty God changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Dark. At the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus' disciples were anxiously anticipating the kingdom to be restored to Israel. But instead, the day of Pentecost came, the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples, which empowered them to make disciples of all nations. After the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the narrative of the early church continues in the New Testament book called the Acts of the Apostles. And for the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, all the members of the Lord's church were Jewish. And the apostle Simon Peter was the leader of the church. But because most of the Jewish nation were still not receiving Jesus as Messiah, God put the kingdom age on hold. And instead, by chapter 8, Philip the evangelist was preaching in Samaria to great crowds and to the Ethiopian eunuch, who was baptized on the spot. And in chapter 9, Saul, the persecutor of the church, was saved and commissioned to go to the Gentiles. And then by chapter 10 of the book of Acts, God has sent the apostle Peter with the keys of the kingdom to open up the new church age to the Gentiles. God sent Peter on a mission to Caesarea, which was the capital of the Roman province of Judea, to the home of a God-fearing Roman centurion named Cornelius, who always prayed and gave alms. In a vision, Cornelius had been instructed by an angel to send for the apostle Peter, who was at the time in Jaffa. In preparation to meet Cornelius, Peter also had a vision he saw unclean animals being lowered from heaven in a sheet and a voice commanded Peter to eat those animals. And when he objected because those animals were unclean according to Mosaic law, the voice told him not to call unclean that which God had cleansed. Talk about a paradigm shift. Next, Peter was instructed by God to go to the home of Cornelius. Imagine how strange this was for Simon Peter because he had never previously visited the home of a Gentile. They were ritually unclean in his mind. Nevertheless, he obeyed and he preached Messiah in Cornelius' home. And the Holy Spirit fell on everybody there. And they even began to speak in tongues. In a sense, it was the Gentiles' Pentecost so Peter commanded them all to be baptized. And so there was in Acts chapter 10 at Cornelius's house, a great transition, a great paradigm shift. 
Even in the previous chapter in Acts 9, the risen Lord Jesus had already appeared to Saul of Tarsus, the church's persecutor, on the road to Damascus, and had commissioned him to preach to the Gentiles. So Rabbi Saul became the Apostle Paul, the leader of the church age. The great transition had occurred. A new dispensation had begun. God began to save the Gentiles, bringing both Jews and Gentiles together into the church as one body, one new man in the earth. And by the time we reach Acts chapter 15, the very real controversy of Gentile converts is resolved at the first church council in Jerusalem. James, the brother of Jesus, and all the elders decided that the non-Jewish converts did not have to keep all of the Mosaic law, except the Jerusalem church did insist upon retaining the prohibitions against fornication, idolatry, eating blood, and meat of strangled animals. So in the book of Acts, the kingdom was not restored to Israel as the Jews had originally expected, but instead multitudes of Gentiles were getting saved. In fact, it's been the church age for the past nearly 2,000 years. So when will the church age end and when will the kingdom be restored to Israel as promised by the Bible with Jesus ruling from the throne of David? Isaiah 9-7 declares that the zeal of the Lord will accomplish Messiah's reign on David's throne and his rule over his kingdom, upholding justice and righteousness. The church the bride of Messiah will be completed at the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. After the rapture, God will change times and seasons again. The thousand-year rule of Jesus will begin soon after Jesus returns to Jerusalem when he is summoned and received by the nation Israel. The zeal of the Lord of hosts is going to accomplish this. So you and I are living at the time of a big, major change. Remember, as I said in the opening of the program, according to Daniel 2, 21, the Almighty changes times and seasons. The church age is ending and the restoration of the kingdom to Israel is in the process of beginning. And we're living in a period of grace, the time of overlap between these two dispensations. Soon the church will be completed. And the church is represented by the typology of the four spring festivals of the Lord, Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and Pentecost, or Shavuot, as Pentecost is called in Hebrew. And then prophetic events concerning the rapture of the completed church and the redemption of regathered Israel will occur. All of these future events are represented by the remaining three Levitical fall festivals. Those festivals in the fall are Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, which is called Yom Kippur in Hebrew, and the Feast of Tabernacles, called Sukkot in Hebrew. The two sets of the Lord's spring and fall festivals, with a gap in between, represent the first and second comings of Messiah. When the Lord gave the children of Israel seven festivals, he chose seven because seven is the number of completion and perfection. And God was telling us history in advance through the typology of the seven Levitical festivals. 
The seven convocations of the Lord have been rehearsed annually by the Jews. And as the Hebrew for Christians website informs us, the biblical year officially begins during the month of the Passover from Egypt. In fact, the spring holidays of Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits recall Israel's deliverance from Egypt and also represent our greater deliverance from sin through the merits of the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah, who is our great Passover Lamb of God. Yeshua was crucified on the eve of Passover as the Lamb of God. He was buried during the festival of unleavened bread, and he was resurrected on the holiday called First Fruits. Then 50 days later, or seven weeks later, the holiday called Shavuot, or weeks, also called Pentecost, commemorates both the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai and the descent of the Holy Spirit at Mount Zion. The term Pentecost comes from a Greek word meaning 50th. Although Pentecost is the Christian version of the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, Pentecost also appears as one of the names for the Festival of Weeks in the Septuagint Bible. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible by 70 or 72 Jewish scholars. And if you think the Pentecostal festival has a lot of names, the fifth feast is known by many more names, and each name is very revealing. After the spring festivals and the intermediate months of summer, the Jewish people begin to focus upon repentance in anticipation of the civil new year, Rosh Hashanah, which is the fifth festival, also known as the Feast of Trumpets, or more exactly, Yom Terah in Hebrew. Next comes Yom Kippur, which is the great Day of Atonement. Immediately following Yom Kippur, the mood changes as the Jews begin preparing for a joyous week-long celebration of the last and seventh festival called Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot in Hebrew. Altogether, the three fall festivals picture the day of the Lord, the second coming of Yeshua, and the great national turning of the Jewish people, the establishment of King Messiah upon earth for his millennial thousand-year rule. So now, what does all of this teach us? As students of Bible prophecy, we should regard the seven Levitical feasts that God gave to Israel as a prophetic grid sheet, a framework. In other words, these annual convocations are the backbone of Bible prophecy. The feasts of the Lord were introduced as holy convocations in the Torah in the book of Leviticus. And as I've told a number of times, but it bears repeating, the Hebrew word for feast or festival is moed, meaning an appointed festival. But the word convocation means a public meeting that is like a dress rehearsal. That means every time we celebrate these festivals, we are celebrating events that took place in the past, such as Passover and Pentecost. But also we are rehearsing future events when we celebrate the fall festivals. Remember, four of the festivals look back to spring and during Passover, the sacrificial blood was daubed on the doorpost and lentils of the houses in Egypt, which was a prophetic picture of Jesus crucified as the Passover lamb of God. The second convocation was the feast of unleavened bread. 
For seven days, all leaven had to be purged out of homes because leaven represents sin and Jesus, the sinless sacrifice, accomplished a perfect work of atonement on the cross at Passover and unleavened bread. And then on the first fruits holiday, Jesus was raised from the dead, as Rabbi Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, saying, Messiah has become the first fruits from the dead. Now the number 50 to the Jews means jubilee, when freedom was proclaimed throughout the land. And on Pentecost, it was no accident. It was all planned by God that the Holy Spirit fell on believers who were praying in Jerusalem, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit 50 days after Passover. This infilling of the Holy Spirit was the beginning of the church, which at first was exclusively Jewish. But as I showed you by chapter 10 in the book of Acts, God had opened the church to the Gentiles. And for the past nearly 2,000 years, we have been living in the church age. So the first four convocations have been fulfilled in the church age, leading up to the fall festivals, which foreshadow the future salvation of the nation of Israel after the church age. Therefore, the last three of the seven Levitical festivals, trumpets, Yom Kippur, and tabernacles, are yet to be fulfilled by Jesus, Yeshua, at his second coming. Many end-time students called eschatologists believe the Feast of Trumpets is a picture of the rapture of the church when the completed church is gathered by the Lord in the atmosphere and the dead and Messiah are raised up and given their immortal bodies. The Festival of Trumpets is always calculated as a two-day event because the exact timing of the day must be determined by the sighting of a new moon. The Jews called the Feast of Trumpets the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, so it also represents a time of new beginnings. This year, the Feast of Trumpets will be from sundown September the 6th to sundown September the 8th, and the two days covers the basis, so to speak, so there's enough time to sight the new moon. Thus, the Feast of Trumpets is sometimes referred to as the day or hour that no man knows. For example, I recall one year that it was impossible to sight the new moon because of the big sandstorm in the atmosphere. Now, in the original Hebrew of Leviticus 23:24, the holiday of the Feast of Trumpets is called Yom Teruah, meaning a loud shout or an alarm like a trumpet blast. We don't foolishly set dates for the rapture, but every year as the Feast of Trumpets comes around, I become especially alert because Scripture does seem to link the rapture of the church with the Feast of Trumpets. And why do we say this? Well, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the shofar, the trumpet of God, and the dead and Messiah will rise first. And then afterward, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Also, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 51, the Apostle Paul revealed a mystery that we shall not all sleep. In other words, we're not all going to die, but we all shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed, Paul wrote.
And so, of all of the Lord's festivals, the future event known as the rapture of the church is most associated with the description of the Feast of Trumpets. In fact, Trumpets is the most mysterious of all the festivals because it's known, as I said, as the day or hour that no one knows due to the necessity of having to sight the new moon in order to be able to celebrate the festival. Now, in the Hebrew of Leviticus 23, 24, Trumpets is literally called the day of the Teruah, the shout. It's interesting that the Hebrew word is Strong's Concordance number 8643 and is translated three times as blowing of trumpets, four times as a joyful sound, five times as alarm, and ten times as a shout. Interestingly, Rabbi Shaul, a.k.a. the Apostle Paul, combined all of these definitions in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 by proclaiming the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a what? With a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with a trump, the shofar of God. Now, when discussing the Feast of Trumpets in the possible time of the rapture, somebody may ask, does God even have a shofar? But you have to remember at Mount Sinai, God spoke with the sound of a trumpet. And it was so awesome that the people were frightened by the trumpet as it grew louder and louder. And so when the trumpet of God blasts at the rapture, it is going to be an awakening blast for all those who are in their graves and for believers who are alive. Another interesting point recently I heard, a preacher pointed out that the Jews called the Feast of Trumpets the wedding day of the Messiah. Well, isn't that interesting? Because Jesus said in John chapter 14, in my father's house are many mansions, many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you, but I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's Jewish wedding talk pointed out by many Bible scholars. Also, I saw a documentary explaining that in Galilean wedding customs, when a Jewish bridegroom was betrothed to his bride, he paid the bride price. Then he drank a glass of wine with her, sealing the betrothal. And then he went to his father's house to build on an addition for him and his wife. But he promised to return and suddenly sweep her away. And that's what Jesus, our bridegroom, has done and is doing. He drank the cup of wine in the upper room at his last Seder. He paid the bride price at the cross with his own priceless blood. He fell asleep in death and his side was pierced by a Roman soldier, and out of his side flowed blood and water. Theologians often point out that as Eve came out of the side of Adam, so the church comes out of the side of Messiah. After his resurrection, Jesus ascended to his father, where he has been preparing rooms for his bride, and when his father gives him permission, he will return to collect his bride at the rapture. I always want to be ready for Jesus' sudden appearing, but I'm especially watchful when the Feast of Trumpets comes around. Regardless of when the Lord comes, His return is imminent. All the signs are around us, and I believe very soon. So with all of my heart, I hope you are also ready and eagerly awaiting. 
I heard a Bible teacher make a good argument for the Feast of Trumpets being the possible time when the rapture occurs because he said it shouldn't be guesswork. After all, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection were all precisely foretold in the Hebrew Scriptures, and those prophetic events of his passion were exquisitely timed with real events, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and Pentecost. These were all dress rehearsals, and so the fall festivals that are still waiting to be fulfilled will also dovetail scripturally and in order. Well, these things I've been sharing are important because the Bible provides us with a comprehensive body of truth that gives answers to all of our questions and to our deepest needs in life. But more than ever, it seems the Bible is under attack, and that's why the Apostle Jude said that we must earnestly contend for the truth once delivered to God's people in this book. We must fight for biblical truth. We must contend for it. We have to contend against various cults and even denominations that claim to be Christian but insist upon adding their own so-called holy books to this canon of scripture. Yet the Bible itself records a curse for anybody who tries to add to or take away from it. We also have to contend with rebels within the walls of the church who deny the authenticity of the Bible. Yet 2 Timothy 3.16 assures us that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that we may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You see, there are at least seven things that the Word of God does for us. According to 2 Timothy 3.15, the scriptures make us wise until salvation. So that's the first thing the Bible does. It gives us the way of salvation through the Savior. And then the Bible also gives us teaching, guidance, wisdom, reproof and correction, training and information concerning future events. You see, not only does the word have a way when you read it of reproving sin, but it also corrects erroneous thinking. Reading it and meditating upon it will restore your soul. It will make you wise. It will rejoice your heart. It will enlighten your eyes, but most of all, it will make you wise unto salvation. You see, Hebrews 4.12 declares the word of God is quick. It's alive. It's powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce even to divide asunder soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That verse explains that this supernatural book is able to probe our life and cut away our shortcomings. And also it protects us by discerning and flagging false teaching. That's just the power of this word. Psalm 19 verse 7 declares the law of the Lord is perfect and it has the power to convert, to transform the soul. When we look into the book of Nehemiah chapter 8, we see this power of the word to transform people. There's a record of a great national revival in this chapter. 
And it's a picture of what's possible to happen again and again if we will give heed to this word. After being taken into exile, the people of God had returned to Jerusalem from Babylon and all the people gathered in Jerusalem as one man at the water gate. Men and women together, they were all in unity, asking Ezra the scribe to read the book of the law of Moses. And so Ezra stood on a platform in the sight of all the people and he read the Torah hour after hour. And it's amazing the people's response. Verse 9 says that they were weeping when they heard the words of the law because they were convicted. They were grieved and hurt over their sin. This illustrates, if we want revival, how vital it is to hear the word of God. All the people were attentive to this word and they stood there and listened hour after hour. Well, if we're so very close to the rapture being fulfilled, we should be especially diligent about sharing the word of God, which has the power to transform people. But do we have enough laborers in the Lord's harvest fields? I read an email about a woman who had a dream recently. And in the dream, she was in a church and the Lord came to her in the dream and said he wanted to show her something. And he showed her visions of various harvest fields, which were ruined in various degrees. And she wrote, I looked down and I saw a wheat field and it was all bent over. And as I looked, the stems were mildewed and another field was blighted and so on and so forth. So she asked the Lord, what's wrong with all of these harvest fields? And he answered that the fields were spoiled because they had been neglected. There weren't enough laborers. He said she was looking at the results of neglected unworked fields. And what does the scripture actually say about this? Jesus said in Matthew 9, verse 38, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Lord, we do ask you to send many laborers into the harvest fields of the world. I was so happy to read that before the takeover of the Taliban, the harvest fields of Afghanistan were being reaped with many souls saved. And the laborers were Iranian believers who had been laboring in those fields and underground churches. And of course, others from America and so forth had been working so hard. Time is short. The work is immense. The harvest fields Jesus was talking about are much more precious than wheat because he was speaking about eternal souls of men and women. Jesus spoke of laborers and not idlers sitting on the fence. Workers must go into the fields. Jesus told his disciples how to obtain the supply of laborers. Just pray to the Lord of the harvest to send them out. So this implies that the number of laborers on the harvest fields is dependent upon our prayers. And the times are changing. The church age is winding up. So we need quickly to be about our Father's business in the remaining time that we have. Amen. Well, I would enjoy sharing your comments or questions through social media or at our website, exploits.tv. And please don't forget to download our free Jerusalem Channel app. That app also offers a free Bible reading plan as well as access to all of our videos 24-7.
Until next time, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom. Amen. I'm Christine Dark, always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. Shalom.